We'll open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. The fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians will continue our study of this text, and I'm going to begin with a confession that my intention, at least at the first of the week when I sent the outline in to our beautiful secretary, who I'm married to, um, that uh, my, I thought we were going to do all three verses and we're not. Um, so we'll get halfway through this text and finish it up next week because it's so dense and so rich. We're going to be isolating our attention in verses 4 to 6, but let me read the first six verses, which will put it all in context. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. On March 30th, 1981, President Ronald Reagan was leaving the Hilton Hotel in Washington, D.C., where he'd been speaking when several shots were fired. John Hinckley Jr. fired his 22 caliber revolver with devastator bullets at the president and his security team. Reagan was wounded when one of the bullets ricocheted off the limousine, striking him under the left arm. Interestingly, President Reagan didn't know he'd been shot until he began coughing up blood. He was taken then to George Washington University Hospital. At first, again, President Reagan was unaware he'd been shot. He initially believed that one of his ribs had been broken in the fray. But upon arrival at the hospital, they removed his shirt and began to do a full examination and realized that the president had a gunshot wound. First Lady Nancy Reagan arrived very quickly as they were preparing President Reagan for surgery. And even in this time of trauma and urgency, he did not lose his sense of humor. When she entered the room, he told Nancy, Honey, I forgot to duck. Nurses then prepared him, wheeled him into the surgery suite. The room was filled with understandably very nervous surgeons. Bright lights surrounded the operating theater. Masked surgeons hovered over Reagan, and before they put him to sleep, he looked up at the head surgeon. He said, please tell me all of you are Republicans. 
The lead surgeon just happened to be an avowed and well-published Democrat. And he looked back into President Reagan's eyes and he said, Today, Mr. President, we're all Republicans. The president then drifted into unconsciousness. Surgical team successfully stopped the bleeding, removed the bullet. President Reagan made a quick recovery, left the hospital on April 11th, 1981, just 12 days after the attack. The surgeon's words teach an amazing lesson. And it counterintuitive, uncanny lesson at that. This surgeon's allegiance to the office of the presidency and his Hippocratic oath transcended the political differences that he had with President Reagan. And we walk away from that with this lesson. Common allegiances to greater things override uncommon differences to lesser things. Common allegiances to greater things override uncommon allegiances, uncommon differences rather, to lesser things. That's the lesson that Paul's been teaching us in three plus chapters of Ephesians. Despite their extreme cultural differences, Jews and Gentiles had both come to faith in Christ. They believed the gospel And we're in the same church. There weren't a lot of churches to choose from. If you didn't like a church, it wasn't like you could go down the street to another one. There was one church in Ephesus. And in the pews were Gentiles and Jews. And their differences and their disagreements were a tinderbox and a powder keg for disunity. So after teaching about the tri-unity of God, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit works in our salvation, and God has forged at the cost of His Son's blood the unity that He expects from the believers. He turns in chapter 4, Paul does, and he tells us how to live out the theology of our unity. He's told us that we're unified, so what do we do about that? How, how, How do we employ that? How do we Apply that. And chapter 4 begins in the first 16 verses to tell us how we are to be unified with those with whom we share differences with in the, in the church. But Paul is not talking about a kind of unity based on sappy emotionalism where we ignore our differences. It's not a unity at any price. It's a unity firmly based on a greater allegiance, what we agree about, what we agree with each other about. It's about biblical truths of the gospel that have pulled us into relationship with God that we share with people that we have differences with on other issues. Boy, we saw this played out, didn't we? In the last few years in our church, where the enemy of our soul tried so hard and we, we felt We felt his fiery darts, as we'll hear about in chapter 6. Over the course of those two years, with him trying to put a wedge between people in church about masks, about vaccines, about attendance, about social distance. And by God's grace, 
I just want to commend you. There was very little traction with those kind of differences in our church. But there, there could have been. I know churches that split over these issues. And yet, it brings me tears of joy to say that you so well navigated that test and that trial and maintained unity, even with people that you disagreed with. Here in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, Paul addresses the heart dispositions of each of us that need to be addressed for us to have attitudes that make for personal unity. Unity doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens out of godly character. And we studied this in our last, our last study. Humility, putting others' needs and others' interests ahead of yourselves. Gentleness, having strength that you're controlling and not being coercive or manipulative or mean-spirited. Patience, which is long-suffering, not quick to respond in a negative way to irritations and annoyances. And love, being tolerant of one another in love. Those are the, the criteria that Paul gives us in verses 1 through 3 for generating unity personally from within our hearts. And in the genius of the Holy Spirit, through the, the mind of the Apostle Paul, he starts with who we are personally with each other. And then the next thing he turns to is who we are to be with each other, about each other, alongside each other, corporately for maintaining and preserving unity. We studied last week that this is not a unity that we're called to generate. Paul says being careful to preserve the unity in verse 3 of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God has granted us unity and all we can do is mess it up unless we're making every effort, what that verb means, to preserve it, to maintain it, to keep it. In order to do that, in verses 4 to 6, Paul turns to our corporate unity by outlining a series of seven doctrinal commitments. Each of these seven is preceded by the word one. Look at it again. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. He reminds us that our greater allegiances to the greatness of our doctrinal convictions will make our differences diminish in the shadows of our unity. There's another structure here that's important, and we'll talk about it a little bit today. We'll highlight it next week. And that is, I, I hope you noticed as we were reading through that text that all three members of the Trinity show up in this context of our unity and our theological allegiance, our commitment doctrinally to God involves a Trinitarian focus of worship. Look at verse four, there's one spirit. Look at verse five, one Lord, that's Jesus. Look at verse six, one God and Father. There's God the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all in this List of allegiances that we're called to have. And remember those surgeons surrounding President Reagan, who they disagreed with politically, had a greater allegiance to his health, to the presidency, to their Hippocratic oath, than they did to their petty political differences. 
in a very similar way, God calls us to have allegiance to him and doctrinal pillars, to the gospel, to all that he wants us to believe together, which should diminish the impact of any petty differences we would have on temporal realities. You know, I, I try to outline the text according to the grammar as much as I can. And it's usually, it's rare that you're studying a sentence or a small paragraph that has more than, than two or three main points. This one has seven, and I couldn't reduce it to any less because there are seven points that, that Paul makes. These are seven doctrinal commitments that preserve unity in the church. These are seven things that you need to believe that God calls us through Paul's pen to hold to, to believe. And they are as stunning as they are simple. Full disclosure, we will get through, Lord willing, three of them today. And I'm hoping we can get through the next four next week. But these, these are deep and wide issues. Sometimes two words but way more than two words in how we'll understand them. Seven doctrinal commitments that preserve unity in the church. The first is in the first words of verse four, common commitment to one body. These one, 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 one statements really are not so much one as opposed to multiple, though they, they are in comparison, they're singular. They're actually one, meaning common. We all have these in common as a belief system. A common commitment to one body. Now, the first thing we need to do is deal with the text itself in verse 4. You see where the, there are, there's the two little words, there is, there is one body. If you have a New American Standard translation, those two words, there is, are in italics, right? You know what that means is they're not in the original. Uh, I know that the, the ESV, the King James, the New King James, the NIV all include those. And those are fine. They're, the translators did a wonderful job of saying there is. That's supplied. But to be honest, if you take out the there is, which is not in the original, it actually has a, a more, more powerful punch. Remember we studied last week in verses 1 to 3 that there are certain attendant attitudes and godly qualities and characteristics that we must have to pursue unity, humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. The apostle just instructs our individual character on how we should have influence in the church, how we respond in the church. Now in verse 3, he summarizes it by saying, this is all so we can preserve this unity that the Spirit has begun by having our connective tissue be peace. We, we don't have bitterness with each other. We don't have, we're not at odds with each other. We love each other. We are brothers and sisters with each other. And instead of starting a new thought, which the words there is kind of begins a new thought, he actually dives into the doctrinal reasons for committing to these preserving dimensions of the Spirit's unity like this. This is, this is how it sounds in the original. It's just really powerful. Being diligent, verse 3, being diligent, making every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. One body, one Spirit. 
And he goes on to his list. When you take the there is, that phrase out, the connection between unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, and the next thing you hear is one, 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 seven times. This is where the title comes from. When seven times one equals one. I don't know where Ben Hyman is. He's always correcting my math. But I, I checked this with some, some theological uh, minds, and they said I could say it here. Seven times one equals one. When that happens, and it's here. Because seven times he talks about one common commitment that we have as believers together in the gospel. But all those one, one, one equal one common unity with each other. These seven doctrinal commitments all serve to show that we are one or to be one in our common unity with each other. And the key idea in these doctrines is their commonality. They bring us together. They're why we exist together. We believe the things about these one statements, which makes us believers together in one body, as it says. This first doctrine is that we are to be committed to understanding, to applying, to portraying the, the reality of one body, one body. It's not so much one as opposed to 20 bodies. It's one, because there's many bodies of Christ in local assemblies all around the world. It's one, meaning we're, we're common. We have a common commitment Every believer throughout time and everywhere in the world now and forever who's truly a Christian are part of Christ's one body. But I think specifically he's talking about the local body that you are a part of that included in Ephesus, Jews and Gentiles. Now, Paul uses a lot of metaphors for the church. A building, a temple, a field. His favorite one, and the reason we think it's his favorite one, or I would say it is, is because he talks more about this one than any other one is this concept of body. Just for a moment, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He goes into great detail in this whole chapter to describe the body of Christ, that when he calls us one body, we are one body, literally the body of Christ, and Christ is the head and we are the body, the members. It's an incredibly complicated and diverse collection of body parts, organs, limbs, a torso, head, fingernails, toenails, hair, all functioning to make one unified body. This is so interesting. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14, he, he goes into greater detail about this one body. He says, for the body is not one member. When you see member, think a body part, a, a hand, a knee, a, an ankle, a foot, a toe. For the body is not one part, but many parts. If the foot says, they'll just stop right there. That's just so interesting. I don't want to surprise anybody or, you know, spoiler alert, feet don't talk. And yet Paul geniusly gives voice to several body parts as if they would respond to each other. Talk with each other. Compare themselves with each other. 
If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. Is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? Just because you say you don't think you're important? Mr. Foot? Now, before you can scratch your head and smile and say, I can't believe you gave your voice to the, the foot, the ear starts talking. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. Is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? Just because you say you're not important doesn't make you not important. Then he just gets really almost comical. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? He pulls the nose in. But now God has placed the parts, the members, each one of them in the body just as he desired. Big nose, little nose, little ear, big ear, tall, short, red and yellow, black and white. He made us like he wants us. And that becomes a powerful illustration for how he made the church, which is the body of Christ. If we were all one member, where would the body be? I mean, it's just silly. You know, if you don't see giant noses walking around that are just a nose. Or there's a hand crawling along the, the counter. I mean, it's silly, but that's his point. Verse 20. But now there are many parts, many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say, now he rebukes the eye. To the hand, I have no need of you. You know, the, the eye and the ear were talking, the nose was brought in, now the eye is talking to the hand. I mean, there's a lot of conversation going on here in the body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Don't think weaker in terms of strength. Think weaker in terms of perceived importance. And he tells us that. And those parts, those members of the body which deem less honorable, on the, these we bestow more abundant honor and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas more, our more presentable members have no need of it. Now, what is he going on? Presentable, not presentable, that means visible. <laughs> That's like saying, you know, I, I like my hands and feet, but my liver and pancreas, I don't need those. Nobody sees them, but maybe that's why I don't need them. What's his point? The more presentable, the more noticeable members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, verse 24, giving more abundant honor to that part, that member which is lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. In other words, if you lack a part of your body, you know it. Ever hurt a part of your body? You know when it's lacking. Now, watch the transition of verse 26. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Suffering and rejoicing are uniquely human responses. 
And we know that what he's talking about because of verse 27. Now you are Christ's what? Body. And individual, individually parts or members of it. I don't want to be silly, but it's amazing to me. I've had big injuries and little injuries in my life. I've had a, I've had a brain surgery and I've had a, a splinter dug out of my finger. It's interesting how little parts of your body that are in pain or, or, or injured make a difference to your whole body. I mean, how big is your toe? When you crash your toe into the coffee table, does the rest of your body say, ah, you're just a little guy, not going to bother us. We're going to ignore that. No, you crumple on the floor. Or at least I do. When your shoulder itches, you scratch it. I told you before, one of the silliest things I ever learned in baseball is you're standing in the, in the box and you get hit and everybody from, the, everybody from the dugout yells, don't rub it. And it's killing you. Everything about you wants to say, oh, my shoulder. And you just have to shrug it off and run down to first base and act like it's not hurting as bad as it is. But it is. Your reflex is when one part of your body hurts you, the rest of your body responds. And that's his point. When one suffers, the whole body suffers. This is a picture of how we are to relate to one another based on the imagery of being in the same body, the body of Christ. We have one body. It's how we're to view and consider one another. God calls us to be so unified that anything in our body, I'm talking about our church, that has a need, that has a hurt, should trigger a response from the rest of the body to to, to care for that. You see where that has to do with unity? You see why he starts with that? Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, one common body. Paul's point here is that we care for each other and it makes a difference. Now, I let me confess to you that we're going to look ahead and when we get to where I'm talking about in a second, we're going to look back because this is all woven together. Look down back to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, look down at verse 11. He talks about gifted men. He says, Ephesians 4, 11, he gave, God gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and some as teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of what? The body of Christ. The health of the body. These gifted men were given to us for our health. You say, what is health? He's going to explain now that's spiritual maturity, spiritual stability. Until, verse 13, we all attain to the, what's our word? Unity of the faith. A healthy church has a unified faith, which we're going to get to next week, by the way, one faith, which means we believe the same things. We have the same doctrinal convictions until we all attain to the unity of the faith, 
referring to what we're going to be looking at next week. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, spiritual maturity. To the, what does spiritual, spiritual maturity look like? To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So we start looking like Jesus looked, acting like Jesus, act, speaking like Jesus, we're Christ-like. As a result, we're no longer to be children. There's the marker, immature children versus a mature man. That's the imagery there. What does an immature spiritual child look like? Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's why the doctrine that we're looking at matters. By trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up, there's another maturity word, into all aspects into him who is the head of the what? The body, Christ. I love verse 16. From whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. It's so much there. We'll get there, but what he's saying is the body, you will not grow individually without the body. The body will be immature without your contribution to the body. It's all, we're in this together, doctrinally, relationally. Church matters a lot. Membership matters a lot. Care groups matter a lot. Involvement matters a lot. And you can't say, well, I don't feel like I need that because, listen, someone, someone needs you. It's an echo of what he said back in chapter 2, verse 19. You're no longer to be strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints are of God's household. Another imagery. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, but excuse me, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, here's our same verb, being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of the spirit of God in the spirit. See the point? We are to preserve our unity because we are a part of the same body, Christ's body, and we function together, we care for each other. I mean... Can I just say it as simply as possible? True Christian maturity is the execution and death of selfishness. Because you come to the body of Christ for what you can contribute, and you come to the body of Christ for what you need. One body. We'll come back to that later in chapter 4. Secondly, we have a common commitment to one spirit. Now he gets into the Trinity. One spirit. Don't miss the fact that one spirit is connected to very obviously the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace in verse 3. Being diligent, making every effort to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, one body and one spirit. Now, it's, yes, it's one and not many, but it's mean, mainly one in terms of common, common focus. Our common commitment to the Spirit of God, to the Holy Spirit, is vital. Let me say it this way. It is an error 
theological error to assert that some have the Holy Spirit and some don't, or some have a relationship with the Holy Spirit and some don't. I remember going to a church with a friend right after high school, and we went to a, uh, a charismatic church for a few weeks, and I was told that I, that what, I was asked, well, are you aware that you don't have the Holy Spirit yet? It was a shock to me, but they began to explain, because you have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit, spoken in tongues, and had some miraculous thing happen, you are, you're lacking of the Holy Spirit. Just not true. Just not true. Paul wrote to the Romans about this doctrine with great detail, because if you don't have the Holy Spirit, we're going to find out from Romans chapter 8, then you're not a Christian. <laughs> Listen to what Paul said to the Romans in Romans 8, 4. You're welcome to turn there. You can listen. I want to read the whole paragraph. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's a significant marker of a Christian. We walk according to the Spirit and His Word and His ways and His values, not our own flesh. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. If you don't have the Spirit, you are hostile toward God, Paul says. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, he says. If indeed the Spirit of God indwells in you, but... Here it is. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. There is no such thing as a believer who is not indwelt by the Spirit, has a relationship with the Spirit, been bought by the Spirit, and is one with the Spirit, as Ephesians will tell us. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. We'll come back to that hope in a moment. So then, brethren, we are not under obligation, not, we are under obligation, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But by the Spirit, if you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you're a Christian, you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit who permanently abides with you and in you. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul comes to the same issue. Verse 4, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. We're going to come back to that next week. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? We've talked about this several times, but that, that's a very easily misunderstood passage. Yes, I believe that the Holy Spirit was with you. He will be in you. John 14 and John 16 tell us the promise of the permanent abiding presence of the Spirit, the Son, and the Father were given to us by Jesus. Yes, He permanently abides with us, in us, by us. Use your preposition as you wish. 
But in 1 Corinthians 16, when it talks about your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the primary implication for that is not an individual, but the church. And if you would all join me in my Tennessee Southern um, English, you would understand it a little better if Paul had, if it had been translated like Paul spoke it, because this is what he says. Do y'all, you, do y'all not know that y'all's, plural, y'all's singular body, not bodies, all of your one body, same thing Paul's talking about in Ephesians, one body, all of your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, why would he say that? Well, because he says in Ephesians 2.21, the whole building is fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord, talking about the church. I don't want to blow up your theology. Yes, the Holy Spirit abides with you. Yes, he is in you. And yes, you are holy to them, to him. This doesn't threaten that reality. But the real meaning of this text is, is deeper than that. That y'all's, our body, our, our congregation, is the dwelling place of the temple of God. We are committed to the Holy Spirit together and we're to preserve His unity together. One sad consequence of the extreme fringes of the charismatic movement is a denial of this doctrine. Some believe that only certain believers have the right kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit, which enables them to speak in tongues, to prophesy, to heal people, to do miraculous things. And if you think that some people have the Holy Spirit and some people don't, you know what that causes? Disunity. You have the Holy Spiriters and the non-Holy Spiriters. But Romans says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, guess what? You're not a Christian. Bad theology. Paul's emphasis here is that we all have the same relationship with the Holy Spirit. It is a common theology that binds us to the unity of Him, the Spirit, in the bond of peace. So since this unity is His unity, our common commitment to Him is essential for our unity. We'll say more about that next week because we also have a relationship with one Lord and one Father, and all of those play a role in our desire for unity. The first doctrinal commitment that preserves unity in the church, a common commitment to one body. Second, a common commitment to one spirit. And thirdly, this is all we'll have time for today, a common commitment to one hope. A common commitment to one hope. Last part of verse four, just as you know, one, one single commitment to the body, one single commitment to each other, with each other to the spirit, just as also to add to that, you were called into one hope of your calling. There's a double play on the word there. You were called into a hope of your calling. This is one of the most encouraging dimensions of our Christian faith. Hope. <laughs> Listen, friends, without hope, the soul withers. Solomon wrote, Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. 
Paul reminds us that we live together in light of one common hope. Now, if you trace back through our hope in Ephesians 1 and 2, you'll see that that hope is directly connected to Christ's resurrection. His resurrection ensures every believer that you and I will be resurrected ourselves after death and enter eternal life in heaven. That common ending, as it were, to our life, which is really a beginning, but the ending of our earthly life, that destination at the end of our life is supposed to be a common hope that binds us together. Listen, we are all as believers headed to the same place and traveling the same direction. So we should do it together. A few weeks ago, the elders had a retreat a couple hours away, almost three hours away from Kansas City. And it was very interesting how natural it was when we were planning to go there, that we were all going to be at the same place, that instantly, intuitively, who, who's going? Who, who can I get a ride with? Who wants to ride with me? It just... It was natural because we were all going to the same place and no one wanted to go by themselves. It's an apt picture for we're all going to heaven as believers. We should want to travel with each other and prepare with each other. There's a group of guys that I, I go um, on an annual hunt with and a lot of the fun is traveling to the hunt with them because you get to talk about what you're going to experience. That's a good picture of what's going on here. We're going to end up in heaven. We should talk about it. Can, can, I, just, can I just be frank with you? There are some in this room who are closer to heaven than others just by virtue of age analysis. Now, any of us could meet our maker this afternoon, regardless of our age. But just if you go by the law of averages and age, if you're older, you're closer to heaven than someone who's younger. There are some who are closer to heaven because of disease and sickness than others. Those who are closer ought to have the freedom and the encouragement to talk to those younger about the fact that they're on heaven's front porch <laughs> And they know what's inside. And telling the younger ones, it's okay to anticipate this. We need people to teach us how to die and how to go to heaven. And the younger people need to have the freedom to sit down with an older saint in our midst and say, I want to finish well. How are you thinking about eternity? You're closer than I am. Those conversations involve having one hope of our calling. You say, well, what is that calling? Well, if you go back in chapter one, it's calling in verse one, and well, excuse me, verse um, Four, that he chose us, he called us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us, verse 5, to be adopted as sons through Jesus. It's interesting, he's telling Jews and Gentiles who were so apart 
distinctive at their conversion to Christianity that now, now that you're both Christians, your, your futures are entwined. You're going to the same place. You have the same, you have the same hope. Interestingly, back in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul said that the Gentiles' life was characterized as what? Being without hope. Now, alongside our Jewish brothers and sisters, we both have one hope of our calling, and that's to be with, look at the next phrase, one Lord, to be with Him. It's not just an earthly hope for converted Jews to see the restoration of Israel and not a heavenly hope for those converted Gentiles alone, but it's one hope together. And biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's motivation based on certainty. Listen, it's not like saying, I hope the Kansas City Chiefs make the Super Bowl. That's wishful thinking. We wish they do. We hope they will. That's different than saying something like this. I hope I get to go to the Chiefs, one of the Chiefs' home games this, this fall. Because that can be a certainty if I purchase a ticket. One hope, our hope, one together is a certainty. It's not wishful thinking. Our hope as believers is our calling. Again, chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 1, verse 18, I pray that since the eyes of your heart have been opened and enlightened, you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance with the saints? Inheritance, what we will get, what we will inherit. It's heaven. Because we've been called, chosen to be holy and blameless, because we've been chosen to be heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, because we've been adopted as children to the Father, we share a hope that will be realized in the future together. Peter O'Brien says it well. A sense of expectancy, therefore, should motivate and unify a believer's actions. A sense of expectancy. This is for another time, but we just don't think nearly enough about the brevity of our life and the certainty of our deaths. But if we concentrate on our hope, we'll see that our death is the doorway into eternity. And we'll be prepared. The hope is personal, by the way. I, I, we don't have time today, but look at the next one, O-N-E. Right after one hope, it's the hope of our calling, he says we have one Lord. One Lord. And that's Christ himself. Now, before we dive into the final four doctrines that we'll look at, Lord willing, next week, we should stop to consider the importance and value of doctrine and common beliefs. We want our church as a leadership team to be doctrinally precise. We want to be sound. We want to articulate what we believe the Bible says and be definitive because God has given us a hermeneutic to understand his clear word. I'll never forget um, when I was looking for a church to go serve at um, before I came to Mission Road, looked at several churches, and my wife and I went to another city to interview for uh, me being the pastor there. I thought it was a good interview, and we 
enjoyed time together. It, was, it seemed a little cold at the end, and we got back home, and I got a call um, from someone in the church. I'll never forget this. You remember the phrase, don't you, honey? Um, said, thank you for coming, and we appreciate you. We think you have a, you have a, uh, um, you have a bright horizon for your future, or something like that. Um, but we don't think it's a good fit because we, we, in talking to you, we just feel like you're, you're too theologically precise, precise for our liking. And I got off the phone and I said, I think that's good, isn't it? I mean, I, I just got turned down. Boy, I hope we're theologically precise. R.C. Sproul said, I hear people say, doctrine divides. And he says, of course doctrine divides, but it also unites. It unites the ones who love God's truth and are willing to worship him according to that truth. Our doctrine and our doctrinal unity should be a fortress we defend with all our might. Romans 16 17, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause divisions, dissensions, and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have heard, doctrine. Turn away from them. So these, these lists of one, one, one are really a call to theological precision, theological unity, theological application together with each other. President Reagan's Democratic doctors put aside their petty political differences to save his life. For the greater allegiance of country and life, they put those aside. The text we're looking at indicates that God is calling you and me to set aside petty differences in light of our greater allegiance to the Lord and to the truth of the gospel. Our greater allegiance to one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, our Father. And we'll hear more from Paul on these one statements next week.